Let's move to healthcare because it is a white coat Wednesday and we're joined by our medical correspondent, Dr. Mitch Shulman. Good morning, sir. Good morning to you. Okay, so coffee drinkers, apparently they get less sleep. Not much of a surprise, but what are we learning here? (laughs) It's a small study in the New England Journal of Medicine. They took 100 people, basically healthy, average age 39, and told them randomly, drink caffeinated coffee or don't drink caffeinated coffee. And they looked at what effect that had on their activity uh, by measuring uh, using one of those wrist devices, uh, how active they were and how much sleep they got. And gee, what a surprise. The people who had the caffeinated coffee tended to be a little bit more active, get more steps in, and they tended to get a little bit less sleep, about 36 minutes less. What they were really interested in was the effect on the heart. And they were looking to see if there was any change in what we call PACs, premature atrial uh, com- uh, contractions, or PVCs, premature ventricular contractions. In English, extra little beats of the different chambers of the heart. Uh, some of them can be intel- uh, in, uh, interesting and dangerous. Some of them really insignificant. And they found in terms of the PACs, eh, no difference. In terms of the B- PVCs, maybe a small difference, but nothing significant. In English, for all of you listening out there, it goes back to our usual theme. If you're someone who finds you're affected by drinking caffeine, don't. If you're not, if you're someone who drinks caffeine and doesn't have any problems, don't worry about it. There's nothing here that changes anything in terms of our recommendations in the past. It just sheds a little bit more light. And the key light here is on the genetics. And we've talked about this before. Some people metabolize caffeine very rapidly. Some people don't. The people that rapidly metabolize caffeine are more likely um, to have the PVCs, those premature ventricular contractions, but not dangerous. The people that metabolize it more slowly, more likely to have problems falling asleep at night and staying asleep. You don't know that. You won't know your type of metabolism. You'll just see the effects of caffeine on you. And so you yourself will be the best gauge of whether you should be drinking coffee or not. Okay, so here's an interesting question. Uh, How risky is it to have a chiropractor crack your neck? I have to think quite. You know, I think they do a lot of very good things for people. I think they help people with back problems and other conditions, and I think they do a tremendous deal of good when it comes to those types of things. But I'm very uncomfortable with anyone, not necessarily even a chiropractor, anyone manipulating my neck. So whether it's, you know, at the hairdressing salon, when they're putting you in different positions to be able to cut your hair to wash your hair, or the chiropractor who may be manipulating your neck for some sort of chiropractic therapy, people should really not have their necks manipulated. Uh, While rare, uh, vertebral artery dissection, in English, a problem with the blood vessels in the neck that run through the uh, vertebra and therefore can be dangerously damaged by neck manipulation. Uh, There are too many cases of it, even though it's very rare. Even one case is one case too many because these people go on to have a stroke. They can have permanent disability. It's not something you want to go near. So manipulate your lower back, sure. Help with back problems or leg problems or arm problems, sure. But manipulate your neck, eh, I'm not keen on anyone going near my neck. Well, I certainly remember at least one case where somebody was having their neck adjusted to a chiropractor and they died. Yeah. So it's rare, knock on wood, for all the thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people who have manipulations done by very competent and caring chiropractors. There have been, look, people see us in the emergency room or see their doctor and get an injection for, I don't know, a tetanus and God forbid can die because of an unexpected allergic reaction. Um, 
unfortunately, things can happen. But if I know the chances, I'd like to be in a position to control my odds of having something horrible happen. And I think the risks of neck manipulation far outweigh the benefits. And so, yes, with my back, yes, with my arms or my legs, but no with my neck. So circadian rhythms and cancer treatments, and apparently there there can be an impact. I know a whole bunch of people are going to lean in close to the radio now to hear what you have to say. Yeah, and be careful with this uh, because there's so much we don't know about this whole area. And so I'll be the first one to say this is an area that requires a lot more work before you can tell an individual when to time their cancer therapy, when not to do certain things. But there definitely is a rhythm to our bodies. And we've talked about this before. There's a whole field of medicine called chronobiology that looks at the relationship with how we deal with medications, deal with disease, develop disease. There's a number of very interesting studies, and this is all summarized in an article in Trends in Cell Biology. And they basically say, look, if you take certain anti-cancer drugs in the morning and the other in the evening, the the combination seems to have less side effects in most people. If you look at when cancer tends to metastasize or spread, tends to be at night. So maybe there is something here without question. But we just don't know enough yet, and it's going to take a while to tease out the details of when should I time this, when should I do that, when is it better for me to have this. We talked in the past about surgery, cardiac surgery, a lovely study out of France showing that you were less likely to have complications from your heart surgery if it was done in the evening or afternoon rather than in the morning. Um, so, But you can't always control those things, and the change, the difference is so small that to miss out on therapy therapy, because you were waiting for the right window or right moment to do it, it's just not worth that until we know much more about how all this works. Okay, and tell me about the smart bandage. (laughs) Look, um, people get... Um, chronic wounds in their legs and other parts of their body on a regular basis that we have a very tough time dealing with. Diabetic ulcers are a classic example. Venous stasis ulcers where the circulation in the leg allows too much fluid to build up and so the skin breaks down and pressure sores where you've been in one position for far too long, usually in a bedridden patient. These are wickedly difficult to treat and we've come very far. But these scientists have come up with a band-aid, band-aid or a bandage that basically has within it molybdenum wires and a magnetic field so you're not attached to a battery or anything creates an electric field. Now it turns out that in your body there are many different electric fields and this general electric field in the area of the healing wound will train the healing cells, the fibroblasts, to orient themselves in the right way and recruit more of them. So a mild bit of electricity stimulates the repair of the, of, the, of the wound and helps it heal much faster. And on top of it, you don't have to change the Band-Aid because it actually disintegrates over time and doesn't leave any harmful residue. So fascinating possibility. Not ready for people yet. This is almost work, but certainly something that we could look forward to. And because it's a device with very little danger to people, something that could get very rapid approval once they've done the preliminary studies in primates and in volunteers. All right. Thanks a lot. Good to have you, sir. My pleasure. Have a great day. Dr. Mitch Shulman, his weekly appearance, 6.50 on our show on Wednesdays, and we call it White Coat Wednesday.